Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Vaughn Tonquinlevan, who's currently the CEO of Futura Health, a nonprofit established to address the nation's allied health workforce shortage starting in California. Vaughn is a nationally recognized leader in workforce development who has been quoted in the New York Times, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and many other publications. Her career spans public, private, and nonprofit sectors, and in 2013, she was named a White House Champion of Change under the Obama administration in recognition of her notable career. She also previously served as Executive Vice Chancellor for the California Community Colleges, which are the nation's largest system of higher education. So Vaughn, thanks so much for being with us today. I'm delighted to join you, Shiv. I'd like to give a quick shout out too to Victor Hu at Lumos Capital who first introduced us. And when he first sent me the information about Futuro, I was like, Victor, please, I have to meet Vaughn. So I'm really glad that uh, fast forward a couple of weeks, we're on this call together. Likewise, likewise. So um, there's been a lot of stressful events over the past few months, obviously COVID, the protests, um, the political situation. We like to start off with our first value, start with the heart and just ask our guests, how are you doing? How are things over on your side? Well, I feel very fortunate to have uh, had Futuro Health be launched in January of this year as a nonprofit addressing the shortage in allied health workers for the nation, starting here in California. I feel we're right at the moment of time of need. And so feel very much that it's a gift that we have the uh, commitment of Kaiser Permanente and SEIU, United Healthcare Worker, uh, it's financial commitment to do this work at a time when the country needs this workforce uh, very much so. Do you mind going a bit into how was Futura formed and then how did you come to lead the organization? I was appointed by the governor of California, back then was Governor Brown, to serve as vice chancellor and executive vice chancellor of the California Community Colleges. As you know, especially with the allied health workforce, which is uh, trained through mostly credentials and degrees that are less than a bachelor, but more than a high school degree, such as an associate's degree, uh, industry value credential or certificate. The community colleges in general is sort of the production engine uh, for most of these roles in uh, most communities across America and, and absolutely true right here in California. And then that work led me to have this opportunity here where I can focus specifically on the healthcare industry. And what's so concerning is that, you know, when you look at the projections, just even for California, which is one state alone, you know, there's a gap of uh, 500,000 allied health workers that are needed through 2024. And so when you start having numbers that big, you know that it's actually a structural issue that no one organization can solve on their own. And so it, it requires a different approach. Maybe you have the question of, you know, why do I do this work? Uh, back in 1975, my family escaped from the Vietnam War and came here uh, as refugees. And I knew that every time someone opened the door for me in education, whether it was in, you know, to college or to graduate school or to even executive education, each time that door was open, I saw greater opportunities than I had before. And so I feel very thankful that that was my life's journey and my work is really to open the door for, for many others. I'm 100% aligned. I've, I've seen the impact education can have on even my own life uh, as an immigrant from Namibia uh, with uh, South Asian roots. 
So I'm curious, what were some of the goals of Futuro? When we first spoke, I was just really impressed with how ambitious you all are and how many people you're already working to reach. So do you mind for our audience explaining some of the specific uh, objectives and goals that you all have set? We have an immediate goal of credentialing 10,000 more allied health workers in areas that are of greatest uh, labor market demand. And so if you look at the, the gap of 500,000, 75% of those roles are concentrated in just 10 occupations. Uh, and so our work is just going through those occupations and beginning to improve production. Now we are not the education providers ourselves. What we do is we curate the partners that come together so that the student has what they need in order to move along in that journey. It starts with our partner, uh, SEIU United Healthcare Worker with their 100,000 healthcare workers who work already in hospitals, you know, they're going out to scout and recruit candidates and no better than people who are working in healthcare to be able to have an eye for who would be a good fit for healthcare. If they have already, uh, if the individuals have already taken anatomy, physiology, and medical terminology, for example, they can go straight into a medical assistant program that we've lined up and have vetted with uh, six education providers. Uh, if they haven't done that, then their on-ramp would be a set of jumpstart courses. And then if they're struggling on uh, English and confidence in English, then we start them uh, with a partner named Voxy, and they start in a course called English Readiness for Allied Health. And that's an example of how we're building out all the on-ramps for just the medical assistant program. And we're underwriting 1,000 medical assistants in 2020 to go through and get, get this certification this year. And we're also adding other occupations, uh, several occupations in health IT, as well as care coordinator. And of course, we are also impacted by the pandemic. Our board recently uh, came together to look at the question of how is the pandemic permanently affecting healthcare and the healthcare workforce versus it being a temporal adjustment. You know, we know that many organizations, healthcare employers have their financials upside down because uh, no, no one's able to do much elective care. Um, however, you know, that's a temporary adjustment. And so what is made permanent is the incorporation and adoption of telehealth at full scale. So we're rolling out advanced telehealth coordinator and a number of other programs that then begin to build that skill set in graduates as well as in people who are working healthcare and need to then skill up for that new reality. You preempted my question, which was, you know, workforce development has always been an, an important topic for, for decades. I mean, automation, globalization were the catalyst for a lot of this in the past. Now this pandemic clearly has, you know, has led to the greatest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. And so I'm just curious, what are some of the lasting effects you think COVID will have on the workforce and then also within healthcare? So there's going to be a, a number of effects, but let's follow on the example of telehealth. So even the medical assistant, for example, the traditional medical assistant is someone who's interested in providing care, right? And those are the skill sets. But if you look at the medical assistant in the new world that is over telehealth, not only do they have to provide care, but now they have to deal with troubleshooting the patient's devices and equipment on their side to make sure that the patient is ready for the appointments with the doctor. So all of a sudden you're doing some IT support, right? 
And furthermore, you're dealing with uh, situations in the home. So there's, is that a little bit closer to skill set to, for example, the geek squad that has to you know, mobilize in order to get to somebody's house. Um, so as we look around the corner, we're having all of our education providers beginning to think about pivoting the skill sets in their curriculum, but we're also doing additional work on the soft skills, even for the MA, medical assistant. So it's not only your normal technical curriculum, but we're doubling down on the soft skills, the interpersonal skills that are needed to operate on the care team, but also the soft skills necessary to operate in a telehealth environment. All of our assumptions on what is valuable today needs to be revisited for the skill sets that are uh, used to be around the corner, but they're actually, you know, right in front of us now. That's a really great and very specific example. I mean, like the geek squad analogy is very interesting too, because, you know, we all can relate to the fact that uh, setting up certain technology can be tough. And as people have to stay in their homes to be able to measure their own vital signs, you know, if they don't know how to operate a blood pressure cuff, they'll need help with that. So that's, that's really interesting. As far as the 1,000 MAs, medical assistants, you're planning to train this year, do you have any sense of like the profile? Are, are these people who maybe lost their jobs at, say, a JCPenney who are trying to reskill? Or are they people who maybe already work in the health system, like a medical billing person who wants to upskill or, or kind of laterally transfer within healthcare? When we look at the profile, it's more around the average age of 35 great range of diversity and just life has gotten in the way somehow. Death in the family, job loss, children, you know, so, so a lot of life circumstances have just disrupted and they are now revisiting getting their certification. Um, as you know, also concerns around student debt becomes much more pronounced at this moment in time. So we're delighted to have the funds from Kaiser Permanente and SEIU UHW to underwrite tuition uh, in 2020 for all these candidates. That's wonderful. I was actually going to uh, ask you about student debt. So we we are fans. I mean, Kaiser Permanente, along with NYU Medical School, both of which are partners of Osmosis, kind of led the news in terms of making it free medical school tuition. And you know, the median debt of a medical school graduate is $200,000, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges. And when I was in medical school, I think it was 180000 So it's gone up you know, 10 20% over those years. One interesting aspect of the COVID pandemic is that it seems to have made society treat healthcare professionals with more respect and, and care more about things like burnout and, uh, and student debt. So I'm just curious, do you think there will be actual policy changes long-term that address this issue of student debt, particularly for essential healthcare workers? Well, the pandemic has brought up and also you know, echoed in the Black Lives Matter the issue of equity and inequity. And I think when we think about the healthcare workforce, you know, this issue becomes even more pronounced. And, and a lot of the root, you know, one root causes is, um, is whether there is the workforce that has the cultural competence and a desire to work in, in these respective communities. You know, what, what we found in my, in my prior life was that uh, it was easier to grow within the communities especially where there's a lot of mobility rather than import. You know, people imported from other states or other regions didn't tend to stick as, as long as people who grew up in, in that community. So I think we have to pull out all the solutions and think about how to, one, make more transparent. Where are the needs? Because it's, it's a confusing array of careers out there. 
And unlike doctors and nurses, which we know are in short supply, you don't often have a discussion around the dinner table about, hmm, I want to grow up or I want you to grow up to be a, you know, a, a medical sonographer, right? Or a, a licensed vocational nurse or licensed practical nurse or a respiratory therapist. I, I would not imagine that many conversations of this level of detail goes on. So we have good jobs where the investment, the financial investment, uh, the ROI is quite manageable, but there's a lack of awareness that these jobs exist, especially in underserved communities. So we not only have to serve the financing, but we actually have to serve the career awareness uh, part of the equation and then make it easy for a candidate to move through a pipeline and not, and not get distracted by all these options that are out there that have, have not been vetted. So, you know, I think part of our collective work is the career awareness and, and how to move people through good programming. You know, you are all about, you know, workforce development. Say they've become a medical assistant through Futuro. How do you then, you know, give them more opportunities to go from the entry-level job to say maybe um, become a medical billing or medical sonographer as you're talking about mm-hmm. and just work their way up that? So let me break that maybe into sort of two parts. So first is that we need to get people in the door, right, in the door. And if you don't yet have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, it is a very long path, very financially difficult path uh, to get to that level. And many jobs are at that level. Um, So what we're beginning to, we have seen now is a whole set of modularization of those bachelors into what are the stackable credentials in between each stack is valued by employer, right? So instead of trying to take a giant bite of education, which not everybody has the time and the ability to access at this moment in time, how do they take smaller bites, get in the door? And then the next policy that we'd love to see to be more pervasive is not actually tuition reimbursement, but tuition disbursement. And um, the Aspen Institute um, uh, Skill for America has been really uh, been a good proponent of this. There was a, once a CEO whom I heard of a company, a manufacturing company, and he went around his company and said, you know, hey, I have this tuition reimbursement policy. Why don't you take advantage of it? And basically it came down to two things. The first was flexibility for most workers with their commitment to, to work and children and life, they just did not have the flexibility to physically get on a campus and deal with the normal schedule of a, a college campus. So they needed adult-friendly programming, in, in other words. But the other part was actually the cash flow of the cost of the tuition. So the mechanic of actually having to pay it up front and then get reimbursed by the company for most um, average Americans, that was actually quite a difficulty and quite a burden. And so once he actually changed his pol- his internal reimbursement policy for being after the fact to be actually floating the cash up front, he actually went from maybe 60 takers to over 700 takers within his employees. So I think we, we need to just look at like how how can we get people in the door into good industries and then begin to stack up their credentials with assistance from the employers while they're there? Now, the other part is the dilemma that employees are not with their employers very long anymore. 
you know, in the good old days, like my father-in-law used to work with Boeing uh, for over 30 years. And during that time, not only did they provide him with, you know, health benefits and other benefits, but they trained him, they sent him to education along the way, right? Well, even with a good employer who is doing that, the average tenure of, of uh, someone with their employer is now has shortened down to five years and, and growing less. So, you know, one of the conversations I had at a National Governors Association gathering is how do we make the financing of education because it's some combination of public, uh, it's your personal, but then it's also the company. So um, in the same way that you save for your children's education in a 529 and your company contributes to it, I mean, your 401k, but it moves with you. Could there be a continuous 529 where companies can contribute to it, but it goes with you and can help you finance education and continuous upskilling throughout your career, but it's uncoupled from your employer because we're not with our employer as long as it used to be. So these, these are, I think, some of the, the provocative policies that we, we could think about. That is really fascinating. I hadn't heard of that ever before, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, definitely we've heard of income share agreements and, and those kind of innovative models of financing as well. I don't take up too much more of your time. Um, I had two last questions. The, the first is, you know, say you were beginning to look into upskilling or reskilling yourself or you're a student, what advice would you, would you want to be told at this point uh, when so much seems to be in flux? Um, you know, I had the opportunity to speak at the graduation and it was a group of uh, master's level tax and account accountants uh, and MBAs that were in the audience. And of course, they were very anxious about the future work and where, where they would stand. So uh, one of the exercises that I recommend was, was not to look at the one or two year time frame, but begin to look at the 10 year time frame because it's so personal that it's, even when you're looking at the three to five year time frame, you get very anxious about it. But 10 years seems far enough. So if you went through a series of provocative questions, like, you know, if everything wrote and repetitious in your profession is going to become automated and can be done by machines, then what kind of work will value the human touch, right? I mean, if you spend some time thinking about it, you would be able to think, okay, well, let's build, let's move more in that direction and less in some other directions. Uh, if that world is one where your colleagues can be humans, robots, or avatars, what skills would make you a good colleague, right? So that's another one where what are the collaboration skills and the sort of the, the digital integration skills. What if the technology platforms and the algorithms become the new middle managers to assign work and to match you with work? What does that mean about you having a digital profile of who you are? Because again, algorithms can only read data. And um, so if you cannot represent yourself and your experience, your education, your credentials, your networks, your influence, through data, right, a data profile, then the algorithm cannot recognize you and match you to work. So I think if you start thinking through some of these provocations about the 10-year future, then you can determine, you begin to think, okay, am I moving my skill set in, in a direction that is more consistent with that 10-year future, or am I moving my skill set, or, or are my skill sets going to stagnate 
So those are some exercises that I think we can all go through just to reflect on our, you know, our, how, how do we stay ahead and how do we keep current? That's fascinating. And our answer to that question is over the next 5, 10, 15 years, as so much of medical knowledge is automated um, and replaced, also democratized with patients getting their own kind of information, sort of what happened with Martin Luther's uh, theses, uh, and you don't need a, a priest necessarily to help you communicate to God. Similarly, you don't necessarily need a doctor. You can go um, online or work, work with a therapist directly and not have to go to a psychiatrist. For some things, obviously, we are interested in developing more caring people because I think it's going to be a much longer time before a, a machine can demonstrate care in the way that humans can. I'm sorry, in the short term, sure. I, I understand like for doctors that at the moment in the rooming where they touch the doorknob to exit, that's when the patient often stops the doctor and says, oh, well, but I have this other issue, right? So even in the telehealth environment, how would you mimic that signal? And so those are short-term adjustments in addition to what you're, you're talking about in the long-term. That's a good point. Yeah, for sure. It's a whole new environment. My last question is, is there anything else that you'd want our audience to know about you, about Futuro, about the society as a whole, um, what you're seeing in the healthcare systems or future of work? Well, um, I think all of us need to contribute to the thoughts and, and actions around how do we make recovery uh, an inclusive recovery. And so from where we sit, whether you're going to become a doctor and you have a lot of staff around you who may struggle with uh, debt because they got in the door, but they can't move up. To those of you who are running organizations, I think we can all from our seat really just think hard about how can the recovery be inclusive so that not only are we a healthier uh, country and with healthy, healthier communities, but that it's a more equitable uh, delivery of healthcare in the long run. Those are some great parting words and, and uh, something we can all strive for. So Vaughn, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and more importantly, for the work that you all are doing at Futuro. Thank you, Shiv. This has been a real pleasure. Keep up the good work. Thank you. And, and with that, I'm Shiv Ulani. Thank you for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.